Hope Church. That's right. Um, let's, go to the, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Lord, thank you um, for today. Thank you that you got us up, you got us here. And Lord, it's by your grace that we draw breath. It's by your grace that, um, Lord, you give us yourself. And Father, thank you that we get to, to celebrate that today. And Lord, thank you that you're here with us. Father, you're not far. But Lord, you're near where your people are. You're near where your word is. So thank you that you're, you're present with us. We don't have to, to try and, and meet with you by some striving on our part, but Lord, you are here with us. And so, Father, speak to us since you are here. Speak to us through your word. Speak to us by your spirit. Speak through me, a sinner. And Lord, through a sinner, speak to sinners who need your grace. Father, we thank you for all your goodness. We pray these things in your name. Amen. So today we are wrapping up the first half or the first half of Ephesians. Chet asked me to, to preach on this, and he's like, I asked him, What do you want me to preach? He's like, You have 25 verses. And I said, Dane Chet, that's a chunk. He's like, You got this. I'm like, Yeah, we can we can work with this. Um, but it's fitting that today I get to preach on this passage. Um, because of two events this past week that, that I was thinking about as I prepared. One is that I got engaged to the lovely and wonderful Micah Tesh right there. Um, year, a week ago today, I almost said a year ago today, that would be way too long. A week ago today, uh, we got engaged, and she said yes, which was a good thing. And second, we got to enjoy July 4th, uh, which is... We got to come together as a country to celebrate our independence and, and commemorate the freedoms that we all enjoy as a result of our independence and the way our country is set up. And that's a, it's a good thing. And so both of these events were cause for celebration. As soon as I got engaged to Michael, we called our parents and, and they celebrated with us. And we also got to celebrate on July 4th. We got to joyfully we got to joyfully articulate our celebration of where we live and the blessing that it is for us to live in this country. And so as I was preparing this sermon, it was evident to me how the entire first half of Ephesians is just Paul celebrating. It is a celebration of Christ. And celebrations generally occur because of something that someone has done or accomplished, and as a result, it elicits a joyful response. And so what Paul is, is doing here in the first three chapters of Ephesians is he is celebrating the accomplished work of Christ on the cross. He says Christ's work on the cross is worthy of celebration. So I'm going to celebrate for the entire first half of a letter to the Ephesian church. And that, that celebration is key because it's going to form the context for how he then encourages Christians to live. We're living in light of a celebration of who Christ is. And so, in this specific section of Ephesians, which is chapter 2, verse 19, through the end of chapter 3, 
he is celebrating specifically Christ's relationship to the Ephesian church. So there's, there's, there's Christ and church kind of held up alongside each other, and he's celebrating the fact that Christ has saved the people. He saved the people for himself. He saved them out of sin. He's already outlined the, the blessings and benefits of being in Christ in Ephesians 1. He's outlined the glories of the gospel and what that means in Ephesians 2. As he nears the end of chapter 2 and into chapter 3, he then celebrates the work of Christ to create a people for himself. And so we're celebrating Christ in relationship to the church. And that's a beautiful thing. And so here, in, the, in, these, section of, in these section of verses, we're going to look at three ways Paul celebrates Christ in relation to the church. So in chapter 2, verses 19 through 22, we're looking at celebrating Christ, the foundation of the church. In chapter 3, verses 1 through 13, we're celebrating Christ as the gospel, the good news of the church, the proclamation of the church even. And then in the end of chapter 3, verses 14 through 19, we get to celebrate Christ as the power of the church. And these three celebrations, these three specific ways in which Paul celebrates Christ, then in the last two verses of Ephesians 3, then elicit a specific response from the church, and it's one of celebration, one of joy. And so I'm going to read the passage as we go through each of these things, and then we'll break it down. So that's just kind of where we're going. So Ephesians 2, 19 through 22. We're celebrating Christ, the foundation of the church. Paul writes, So then, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. The whole building being put together by him grows into a holy sanctuary in the Lord. You also are being built together for God's dwelling in the Spirit. So I'm going to take kind of the verse 19 and verses 21 through 22, and we're looking at what Christ is, what the church is being built into. There's three, there's three building terms I'm going to work with here. So the church is being built into something. It's first what I'm going to look at. And then we're going to see that the church is being built by something. And then we're going to see that the church is built on something. So the first thing will look like is the church being built into something. So what is the church being built into? This is evident in verses 19 and then in the second half of verse 21 and 22. And so the first thing that we are built into is three things. A household, otherwise known as a family, a kingdom, and a sanctuary. So the church is being built into a household, kingdom, sanctuary. So Paul gives us two metaphors. He says, so then you are no longer strangers, but instead citizens. Or excuse me, but members of the family. There were no longer strangers, but members of the family. There were no longer foreigners, but citizens in the kingdom. And I think these two metaphors are, are working together by speaking to something that we all, all have within ourselves. And that is, all of us have a sense of belonging. All of us have a sense of wanting to belong to something. We all have a need to be where we fit in with a people with a with a group somewhere we feel at home, and so one of my favorite 
Christmas movies is Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. And I love it because it's not a typical Christmas story, at least not in the sense of what you think about a Christmas story or you think about Miracle on 34th Street. It's not necessarily like about Santa and like the good stuff that he is. It's about belonging. Because you have Rudolph, if you remember the song, basically follows the song Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. But he feels like he is a misfit. He doesn't feel like he belongs because he's someone who has a red nose, everyone else has a black nose, and it shines, and it's kind of weird. So he runs away from everything that he knows because he feels like he doesn't fit in. And there is an elf who we get to follow along with him. His name is Herbie. And he's an elf, and elves make toys, right? Herbie doesn't like to make toys. Herbie doesn't like to make toys. Herbie doesn't like to make toys. That's in the movie, sorry, if if you've never seen that. And they say, shame on you. But Herbie likes teeth. Herbie wants to be a dentist. And so he runs away because he thinks he's a misfit. And it's interesting, they run into each other and they find instant companionship. They find a sense of belonging to each other. Because they both have something in common. They're misfits. And eventually they're going to end up back in the North Pole and they're accepted back into the community because the community realizes that they both need Herbie as a dentist. They have bad teeth. And, but they also need Rudolph to shine his way through the, through the blizzard, otherwise Christmas would be canceled. But the point is that everyone has a sense of needing to belong to something. And so, in Christ, the church, in Christ, the church is a family. Like, we are created into a family. A family is where you're ultimately supposed to feel like you belong. They're your blood. You're related to them. Your mother, your father. This is from the beginning. This is Genesis 1, 2, and 3. Like, family started right there. God created the family to be a unit, to be together. And so, in Christ, we are a household. We are a family. With God, He is our Father now. He's the Father of all things in the sense of creation. But He's also a personal Father of the family of God. And we get to also be a family with the people of God as well. We don't just have father, we also have brothers and sisters. And so we get to belong to God, and we get to belong to others. We get to have a sense where that deepest sense of satisfaction within us is satisfied in God. And so in Christ, you are family with God and family with the people of God. In Christ... You have a home. And you were also citizens of a kingdom. We're no longer foreigners. When I've gone to Mexico with One Hope before, it's easy to feel out of place because I'm an American in Mexico. I don't speak the same language. I'm not a citizen. I don't have the same rights. I'm a stranger there. People look at you because some people have never seen a white person. I've been to Indonesia where people would just, they gawk at you. They just look at you and not even blink. You look by your back and they're like, I'm not looking away. I've never seen your color skin before. But you... Or, but I was a stranger there. But instead of being a stranger, a foreigner, we are now citizens of God's kingdom. We have a place there. We have rights there. We have a sense of belonging there. And so, these two metaphors work together to create in us a sense of belonging. So we belong in the people of God through Christ. We have a place where that need is met. And so Paul's celebrating that we now have a home in Christ. But it's not just a sense of belonging that we get from being in Christ. It's also a sense of purpose. So Paul uses a third metaphor in saying that we're being built into something. And you can see it 
Here in verses 21 through 22, the whole building, speaking of the church, being put together by him, grows into a holy sanctuary in the Lord. Now, the sanctuary term given to us by Paul is a reference to the Old Testament, specifically the Holy of Holies. And that's the place where God's presence rests. It manifests itself on earth, first in the tabernacle, which was built by Moses in the wilderness, but eventually would be in the temple built by Solomon. That would be the resting place of God. That would be the place where He would be physically manifest. And it was only open once a year to the high priest. So only one dude once a year. And he would come to atone for the sins of the whole nation of Israel. And that was the only time anyone was ever allowed in there. So when Paul says that the church is the sanctuary, he's saying that the church is the holy of holies. What happened when Christ died? The veil was torn. The veil was what covered up the Holy of Holies and separated it from the rest of the temple. But when the veil was torn, this is what, this is what Christ was saying by that action to us, that the church is now the Holy of Holies. Every, the whole temple is the Holy of Holies, and everyone is allowed into the temple because of Christ's work. And so he's saying that in the church being the Holy of Holies, it's the place where God's manifest presence resides and is made visible. So that's what the church is. That's the purpose of the church, to be the place and to be the people where God's presence is manifested to the world. It's made visible to the world. And so there's a few implications here, just as, just as side notes, but everyone has value because of this. People are... These are people who are, who are now the Holy of Holies. It says, the church is part of the dwelling place for God, and every person is indwelt by God. And if God is the most supremely valuable being that exists, if we have God, we have value. So everyone outside, of course, does too, because we have to bring people into the church, right? And if people outside the church are allowed into the church, then... They have value too. We're all created in the image of God. It's Genesis 1. And so, it's people who bear God's image and are valued by Him over all other aspects of creation. And if He's allowing these people into the church, we all have value. We also now have a place and purpose in ministry. The church isn't just the isn't just Chet. It isn't just Derek. It isn't just Greg back in the day. It isn't, it isn't just a few people who are up here ministering to y'all, leading small groups. But everyone has a place and purpose in ministry. If the entire church is called to manifest the presence of God, then we all have a responsibility to do so by participating in the work that is being given to the church. And so, in these things, we see what the church is being built into. Family, temple, sanctuary, and kingdom. We're also built on something. This is verse 20. Read it. We're built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus Himself as the cornerstone. So we're built on two things. First is Christ, the cornerstone. The cornerstone was the most important part of the building because it was, the, it was that which gave the whole building alignment. We're talking about the foundation, everything built up on it, but if anything was out of alignment with the cornerstone the whole structure was liable to fail, was unsound, and it could collapse and never would last. But Christ is the cornerstone of the church, and if 
God, Christ Himself, the perfect one is the cornerstone of the church, then He is the perfect one on which the whole church is aligned. So to be in aligned with Christ is to be founded on the cornerstone. The whole church is aligned upon Him. So see, He's the only thing that the whole church could be aligned upon that would work. And Christ is the cornerstone. And then we have the phrase, founded on, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. So this is a reference to the Word of God, the Holy Scriptures. If you look down in verse 5 real quick, Paul's talking about the gospel being made known to him. It says, it's now revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Now it's not talking about just anyone who could be a prophet. It's not just talking about anyone who could be an apostle, but it's talking about a revelation to the apostles and prophets on which the church itself could be founded. And that was the Word. Christ was the fulfillment of the Word. The revelation of Christ was given to people to make the New Testament. So when Paul says apostles and prophets, he's talking about the authors, essentially, of the New Testament. The authors of the Scriptures. The New Testament and Old Testament. New Testament fulfill, shows the fulfillment of the Old Testament. So it all is the Bible. It's all the Word of God. So together we are founded on Christ the cornerstone. Now, don't get it wrong. Christ is not the Bible. I don't, want to, I don't want to make that distinction. But also, the cornerstone forms the basis for the foundation itself. Forms the alignment for the foundation itself. So the foundation is no good if the cornerstone is no good. So the cornerstone has to be central. But there's also a foundation that goes alongside the cornerstone. The cornerstone's foundation that's built off of it is the Word of God. So we're built on Christ. Christ Himself and Christ revealed in, in the Word, in the Bible. Thirdly, we're built by Christ. This is in verse 21. It says the whole building being put together by Him. He is the one doing the work. He is the one building the church. He's the one on whom the church stands. And He's the one by whom the church stands. And this, in Him, the whole church holds together. That's Colossians 1.17. The church could not stand otherwise. We have one foundation, one builder, and one mortar. So all these, all these things are meant to, to, to bring together or to bring out to us a sense of unity. This was earlier in Ephesians 2 is really the, the unity of the church. That the hostility has been taken away from between the Jews and Gentiles. They made into one new man from the two. The whole church is unified together on Christ and on the word. And so what that means is that anything that promotes disunity in the church has to be eliminated, can't, cannot be accepted. For a sense of belonging, talking about family, you're talking about citizens, that means racism is not acceptable in the church. Racial superiority, not acceptable. Sexism, not acceptable. Denigration of the poor, looking down upon them, or the destitute, or the outcast, foreigners and refugees. All these people are meant to be in unity together in the church and find a sense of belonging in the church, in Christ. This also means that excessive denominational identification and pride needs to be removed from the church as well. It's well and good to be a Methodist. Don't get me wrong on that. Denominations have a place. God is doing the same work in the believers in the Methodist church as He is in the Baptist church, 
as he is in the Lutherans, as he is with non-denominational churches, as he is in, in the Roman Catholic Church. He's all doing the same thing through the believers in, in all those denominations. And that's to save and sanctify people for himself. He's doing the same work. And so that means we don't need to be too caught up in denominational identification because that takes away from the work that God is doing no matter the denomination. And this unity, though, is not just to be found in belonging, though. If we do that, we get into some trouble, don't we? We start including everyone for the sake of inclusion without realizing what the purpose of the church is. The purpose of the church is to be God's dwelling place. It's the place of God's presence and it must also, as it was in the Old Testament, be the place where sin is never accepted. The high priest had to go through such a series of rituals to basically depict the cleansing that he was supposed to have from sin in order to even enter into the Holy of Holies. And as soon as he left the Holy of Holies, he had to take everything off and put old clothes back on because the place was so holy and so free from sin. So sin had no place in the Holy of Holies because God Himself, being holy and blameless, dwelt there. In the same way, sin has no place to be accepted in the church since it's the new Holy of Holies. It must be battled with all the might of the church working by the Spirit. That must mean we must, means we must know what God considers sin. It means you have to know what your Bible says about sin, what it considers sin. And then you actually have to put it off. You have to fight sin by putting off the old man and his sinful desires while putting on the new man and his godly desires. You get into that a little bit in Ephesians 4, but Colossians 3 is really good when talking about that. I'd recommend, I'd recommend studying that a little bit more. But we do it individually, don't we? There's a personal aspect to it, but Paul is writing to a church here. So there's a corporate nature to being sinless. And so we have to pursue sinless, we have to pursue holiness together as a congregation. It's not just a, a one-on-one isolated walk with the Lord, but church together pursues holiness. So that means you have to be part of a church to do that. And you actually have to understand together as a church what sin is and do your best to work together as the people of God to eradicate sin in your midst. And then put on holiness in its place. So unity must include the belonging and the purpose together so that the church can maintain the character of her builder, who himself was not afraid to eat with tax collectors and sinners. He had no problem with that. But he also had no problem telling them to go and sin no more if they, in fact, confessed belief in him. So this is, this is Christ, the foundation of the church. This is what Paul is celebrating. He's celebrating that we are built into something by him. He's celebrating that we are built on Him. We have a sure foundation. We're built, being built upon Him and by Him. He is the one doing this work. But how does the church grow? How does the church grow? How does that happen? Christ is doing the building, but how is it that He's doing the building? Well, this is Ephesians 3, 1 through 13. The language of building the church, As you see in verse 21, the whole thing grows into a holy sanctuary in the Lord. That's a sense of an ongoing nature there in the language. So it's ongoing. So it's still going on today, but how is he doing it? He's doing it through the gospel. He's doing it through the message. He's doing it through the proclamation of the church. So Paul celebrates the fact that Christ is the gospel of the church. Next. And this is 3, 
1 through 13. I'll read it. For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, you have heard, haven't you, about the administration of God's grace that He gave to me for you? The mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have briefly written above. By reading this, you are able to understand my insight about the mystery of the Messiah. This was not made known to people in other generations, as it is now revealed to His holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. The Gentiles are co-heirs, members of the same body, and partners of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I was made a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace that was given to me by the working of His power. This grace was given to me, the least of all the saints, to proclaim to the Gentiles the incalculable riches of the Messiah, and to shed light for all about the administration of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. This is so God's multifaceted wisdom may now be known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavens. This is according to His eternal purpose accomplished in the Messiah, Jesus our Lord. In Him we have boldness and confident access through faith in Him. So then I ask you not to be discouraged over my afflictions on your behalf, for they are your glory. And so Paul actually interrupts himself in this passage. He is intending to essentially start the prayer that he does in 14, but he talks about being a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, and he kind of gets caught up in himself. But it's important that he does because then we see that he celebrate, he gets to celebrate Christ as the good news of the church, the gospel of the church. And so there, there's four things in the year. First is the actual message itself. What is the gospel? What is the good news? Next is the messengers. Who is the one doing the telling? Who is the one giving this message? Third is the recipients. Who is the one getting the gospel? Who is the one receiving the gospel, receiving this message from the messengers? And then fourth is an audience. Who's the one witnessing this, kind of from outside the box a little bit? We'll kind of get into that. There's between recipient and audience uh, as we get there. But first thing is the message. There's four things in view here with Paul as he lays it out. that Christ is the fully revealed mystery of God's grace. I'm pulling that from verses 1 through 5, 9, and 11. Basically, Paul, Paul uses the term mystery to refer to the gospel throughout his writings. And he talks about different parts of the gospel, different parts of the mystery. But it's interesting, he does call it a mystery, doesn't it? And so one commentator writes, in order to clarify what he means by the word mystery, he refers to a mystery as a concept of truth, as a secretly, as a secret, concept of truth as a secret, divinely revealed and to be received by the obedient understanding of faith. And so kind of made me think of Jesus' parables, right? Where he, he says, He who has ears, let him hear. But it's, it's something that only those who are willing to hear have the ears to hear can listen to and understand. So it's, it's open, but it's also a secret. So it's an open secret. This is the mystery. And he's talking to about it in, in, in a respect about the Old Testament. We know that in 2 Timothy, that the Old Testament is able to make us wise for salvation. That's one of Paul's sayings to Timothy. So the Old Testament had Christ in it. Christ is essentially buried there. But the New Testament gets to reveal Him. The preaching of His, his own preaching, Jesus' own preaching, plus the preaching of the apostles and the prophets and the writings of the New Testament essentially reveal Christ as the fully revealed mystery, the vindication of everything that God was doing in the Old Testament. 
to call a people to himself, to vindicate people and, and save them from sin. And so, Christ, this, this is the mystery, that Christ is the grace of God, revealed in the fullness of time as the one who came to become sin for us, to be crushed on our behalf, that's Isaiah 53. So that those who believe in Him and call upon Him as Lord and Savior might receive the forgiveness of sins, His righteousness, new life, the Holy Spirit, being made part of the people of God, essentially all of Ephesians 1 and 2. So that is, that is the divinely revealed mystery of Christ, the gospel. He is the one who came in the fullness of time and showed himself to be Lord and Messiah and Savior and the one able to take the penalty for our sins and forgive us of them if we would believe in him. That's what the whole Old Testament is pointing to. And this is what now Paul is saying is revealed to him. Christ is the fully revealed mystery of the grace of God. We also see that the message is that Christ is the unifier of the Jews and Gentiles. This is verse 6. The Gentiles are co-heirs, members of the same body, and partners of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So if Christ is making the Gentiles fellow heirs, He's making them heirs with someone. And so He's making them heirs along with the Jews who believe in Christ. He's making them heirs of the same blessings given to the people of Israel, which find their final fulfillment in Christ. He's making the members of the same body, the same people of Israel, the people of Israel that find their fulfillment in Christ. And He's making them partakers of the same promises as the people of Israel, now fulfilled in Christ. So He brings the two people together. He brings Jews and Gentiles together into a new body, into one body, the new Israel. We also see that Christ is the multifaceted wisdom of God. If you use ESV, it might say manifold or it might say something kind of along those lines. I want us to turn real quick to 1 Corinthians one twenty four. I think it clarifies this for us. He said, Yet to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is God's power and God's wisdom. And so Christ is the wisdom of God fully on display. And, and when he's talking about it, he's talking about the cross. He'll talk about that earlier in 1 Corinthians, that the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but is God's power to us who are being saved. So Christ on the cross is the fully divinely revealed wisdom of God. The fact that God would die on behalf of people who are sinners to reconcile them to himself. That doesn't make sense to the world, but it is God's wisdom. So Christ is the fully revealed wisdom of God, and it's multifaceted. It's, it has many colors even, and to put it another way. A simpler version of that word appears in the Greek version of the Old Testament when talking about Joseph's coat of many colors. And so, in not quite the same way, but in the same way that the coat was representative of his father's love for him and was beautiful in all its many colors, so the gospel given to us by a loving father is colorful and multifaceted in all the beauty that it is and all in everything that it represents of God to us and teaches us about God and invites us into with God. And the fourth thing about this message is that Christ is available to people by faith. This is verse 12. In Him we have boldness and confident access through faith in Him. And so Christ is doing a lot. But we got something to do too. And it's not a work, but it is to believe. We have a responsibility to believe the gospel in order to be brought into the people of God. 
So the people of God are those who can confess Christ genuinely as Lord and Savior. Nothing else saves you. Church membership doesn't save you. Christian parents won't save you. Being part of a nation that claims to be built on Christian values doesn't save you. None of that will save you. All of those are good things, but they're not saving things. Faith in Christ does. So I just want to take a moment today to urge you, if you haven't done so, to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. God knows your heart. He came to earth, Christ came to earth to live among us. He came to die for us. And He was, and he was raised up to save you from your sin, to give you eternal life, to give you His righteousness, to give you a place with God, an inheritance with God forever. And I urge you to believe in that today if you have not done so. This is the gospel. This is what we're called to believe. We must do so. So that's the message. Christ is the fully revealed grace of God, the unifier of Jews and Gentiles, the wisdom of God, and the one who's available to people by faith. That's the message. Second, the messengers. Paul talks about himself here a lot. Paul talks about himself as a prisoner of Christ for the proclamation of the gospel. He was actually in prison when he wrote this. He was arrested back in Jerusalem, and he ended up in Rome because he was proclaiming the gospel about the Gentiles to the Jews, and eventually he got arrested. So it talks about that he is a prisoner of Christ as far as a, he is a prisoner because of Christ, but he's also someone who is under a spiritual compulsion to preach the gospel. This is verses 8 and 9. It was, the grace was given to me to proclaim to the Gentiles the incalculable riches of the Messiah and to shed light for all about the mystery hidden for ages in God. So, in order, to, in order to think about this, Paul also writes in 2 Corinthians 5 that he's, he says the love of Christ compels him to plead on Christ's behalf to people to be reconciled to God. And so he is under compulsion to preach this gospel. He is a messenger of it because God said, I'm giving you this message in order to preach it. But he's telling someone about this. He's not just saying, this is Paul, I'm Paul, God gave this grace to me. So that I can preach. He's saying it to the Ephesians so that they can preach the same message. So the messengers of the gospel are also the church. So he tells them of the grace that was given to him for the purpose of proclaiming, not so that they would see proclamation as Paul's responsibility alone, but so that they would see the message as being passed on to them with the same intent as what God had for Paul. That is to be under a burden to proclaim the revealed Christ to others. So we received that same message. Paul preached faithfully. Because he preached faithfully, and he entrusted this message to us. He's one of the writers of the New Testament. God himself entrusting this message to us through Paul. We too are to preach. As it says in verse 9, to shed light for all about the administration of the mystery. So the messengers, we have the message, the messengers, basically everyone, Paul and the entire church. So then we have the recipients of the gospel. This is verses 6 through 8. The Gentiles, the Gentiles themselves are, are co-heirs with Christ, but also the grace was given to me to proclaim to the Gentiles the incalculable riches of the Messiah. So this message is for both Jews and Gentiles. 
Jews and Gentiles specifically do not believe in Christ. And it's for all people. The world is entirely divided between Jews and Gentiles. You're either a Jew or you're a Gentile. One of the two. And Paul says this message is for all of them. Because if the Gentiles are co-heirs, the Jews are also co-heirs. And both together, if the Gentiles must have the gospel proclaimed to them, so do the Jews. And the message to be proclaimed is what Paul's the, Paul calls the incalculable riches of the Messiah. So the whole world is meant to share in these riches. And they can because the riches of Christ are incalculable. You might say immeasurable. You might say innumerable. You might say inexhaustible. You might say infinite. You can't use up the riches of Christ. You can't spend it all. You can't give enough away for the riches to be depleted and find yourself bankrupt. There's enough of Christ to give to the whole world. There's enough of Him to give to the whole world. And He is treasure. In Him are riches. He is treasure beyond all imagining. All imagining. So the gospel must be proclaimed for the salvation of the world. It was given to us for that reason. It is enough to save anyone and everyone who would believe. And it's not just Jews and Gentiles, though, who, who haven't believed the gospel, though. It's also the recipient of, of the gospel is the church. If Christ's riches through the gospel are inexhaustible enough for the salvation of the world, they're also enough for the sanctification of the church. The gospel is the church's glory. And the crown she wears, Christ's Righteousness, her justification through Him, the message about that, the righteousness given to Him, her splendor that will be fully revealed on the last day when He comes again. And the gospel is how she is being presently prepared for this glory. The gospel encourages us to pursue obedience to the Lord. Again, the church is the new holy of holies. is meant to be holy. So the gospel is what saves us, but it's also what changes us. It's what changes us into a greater holiness. That's what sanctification is. The process of us becoming more holy. We never get beyond the gospel, therefore. It is everything for us. It is how we are saved. It is how we are sanctified. It is how we will one day be glorified through the message of it. So the Christian life is based on the hope of the gospel, one of rely and try. A life that relies on the hope of the gospel for holiness But it's also a life that tries for holiness because of the hope of the gospel. The church is therefore meant to continually receive it. This is why we do preaching. This is why we do small groups. This is why we do Bible study. The church is meant to continually receive the gospel because it's the vehicle by which God's grace comes not only to save us, but to sanctify us. So we have message, we have messengers, we have recipients. Now we have the audience. This is the curious verse 10. This is so God's multifaceted wisdom may now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavens. I had no idea what that meant when I first started studying this passage. What are these rulers and authorities? I think Paul's got a couple of intents here. First, he's telling us that preaching the gospel is a cosmic enterprise. Yes, it does work in the world, but also... It is showing something to the spiritual realm as well. It is telling the heavens and the earth, the spiritual and the physical, the material and the immaterial about the great grace of God that is at work in this world. Colossians 1 is clear that Christ created these, rule, these rulers and authorities and said that they were created by Him. And I think based on the context of Ephesians, he's talking mainly about those that are evil. There are good spiritual beings, 
There are angels. There are elders. Revelation has a lot of good spiritual beings displayed within it. But based on the context of Ephesians, Ephesians 2.2 says, "...in which you previously walked according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler who exercises authority over the lower heavens, the spirit now working in the disobedient." And Ephesians 6.12, which says, For our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the world powers of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavens. So while there are good spiritual beings, Paul is mainly saying that the gospel is a proclamation to the evil spiritual beings. They're the audience of the drama of salvation, as John Stott says it. So what's Paul's point in saying something like that? I think it's this. The preaching of the gospel in this present time functions to put the spiritual forces of evil on notice. That their time is short and close to an end. And that they are powerless to stop it. They're under the authority of Christ. If He's working all things for His glory and for His good. If He's created it, He's authority over it. Ephesians 1, 21 says... That Christ is far above every ruler and authority, power and dominion. Christ is over them. If He has authority over them, if He's created them, and if they are the audience of the drama of salvation, then it can only be that the proclamation of the gospel on the earth is to tell them that their time is coming to an end. This is what we get to do in the preaching of the gospel. We get to proclaim that which saves people, but we get to tell the whole world, and not just the, the, the physical world, but the spiritual one as well, that good will triumph. That good is going to triumph. It is assured. It is promised. And that evil is coming to an end. We get to, that is one of the hopes of the gospel. That by, by its spreading, that because of its proclamation, everything is being brought under the authority of Christ, and that one day He will fully eliminate all evil. And there is nothing evil can do to stop it. So that's, that's celebrating Christ, the gospel of the church. He is the message we proclaim. He has chosen us to be messenger, messengers of Him, of His message. He has called people to receive the gospel. And He's also putting the, the forces of evil on notice that their time is short. And that he will triumph. Paul celebrates all of this. He celebrates the fact that this is what Christ is, is doing through the church. Doing all these things. Can you tell them my one application for today is to celebrate? We are to celebrate these things. Paul's relentless in his celebration of Christ. And so we are to celebrate in the same way he does. About, about Christ and about his relationship with the church and what he's called the church to be. And finally, finally he gets kind of back to his train of thought. And he starts praying. And his prayer is to celebrate Christ, the power of the church. So how is it that the church is able to be the church it's supposed to be? How is the church able to do all this? How is it supposed to proclaim the gospel? How is it supposed to be holy? How is it supposed to be the Holy of Holies? How is, it to, how is it supposed to be a family, be a kingdom? And show these things to the world. Where does it derive this ability from? It derives it from Christ and the power that He gives to us. 
So let's read verses 14 through 19 of chapter 3. For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. I pray that He may grant you, according to the riches of His glory, to be strengthened with power in the inner man through His Spirit, and that the Messiah may dwell in your hearts through faith. I pray that you, being rooted and firmly established in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the length and width, height and depth of God's love. And to know the Messiah's love that surpasses knowledge. To know the Messiah's love that surpasses knowledge. So that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. What a prayer. And so, where does this power come from? Christ is powering us. Where is the power coming from? Well, it's coming from, it's coming from Christ. It's, all, it's coming from God. It's heavy right there at the beginning in, in the language of the Trinity. Paul kneels before the Father. He prays to be strengthened with power in the inner man through the Spirit so that the Messiah, that is Christ, can dwell in their hearts through faith. So it's God, every aspect of God, every person of the Trinity working together to give us access to this power. We get access to it from the Sovereign Father who gives access to the power by the power of the Spirit and by the power of the indwelling Christ through faith. So the whole Trinity is working together here. Here, The presence of God is the source of this power. There is no other source that exists for the church. No other source you can plug into and be empowered to do this kind of work. There's nothing that you can do. There's no source of power in and of yourself. You can do a lot. We've got people with abilities here. But the power to do the work of the church and to love Christ and to celebrate Christ comes from God. And it comes to us through Christ. He is the source. But He also doesn't kind of leave us hanging with power, does it? He defines what power is for us. First, it's strength. Specifically, strength in the inner man. That is, the Old Testament uses the language of heart here. The heart is the whole inner man. Not just the seat of the emotions, but the mind, the intellect, the will. Everything that forms the immaterial side of you is referred to the heart. It includes the soul too. So Paul says, that, Paul says that he wants the Ephesian church to be strengthened, to be made strong in their inner man, in their mind, in their heart, in their soul, in their spirit, in their inner let, their will to be made strong for what? Well, that's the second thing, to love. Paul says that he wants, I pray that you being rooted and firmly established in love. ESV translates that grounded, grounded in love. So there's two, there's, two, um, there's two analogies here. Paul is really helpful with illustrations because he, he does it with his language. So rooted, rooted. Think of a tree. But don't just think of like a tiny sapling. Think of an oak, 200 years old. Think of a redwood, 2,000 years old. Yes, they can grow to be that old. Think of the root system of those. Not, they're, they're deep. Not like to the center of the earth deep, but they're deep, deep enough to support it. Mainly they're wide. So they can reach out into as much soil as possible to draw nourishment and stability. And so love provides the resource for the Christian to be nourished and anchored. That's what Paul is saying here. So love is basically good soil. Love is good soil. It is the best soil even for us to be rooted in. And so the deeper and more extensively we are rooted in love, the more we are able to do what we are created to do, which was to love God, 
to have a relationship with and to love people. And he also uses the language of firmly established, that is grounded. So the imagery there is that of a building's foundation, which should sound familiar because we already talked a little bit about Christ as the foundation of the church in the end of chapter 2. But the, the idea here is a little different. It's not quite the same. The foundation, the foundation here is the Christian life being built and founded upon something that is stable, that is love for Christ and others. I think this is part of what Jesus is getting to when he, when he, when he speaks a parable in Matthew 7 about a house being built upon the sand and a house being builted, built on the rock. A house that is built on sand is easily washed away. It's bad foundation material. It's bad soil. A house built upon the rock is strong material for a foundation to be founded on and will not be washed away. And so we see here that there is a responsibility to love the rock. The rock is Christ, but the rock is also the rock is also loved there to an extent. And that Christ is the rock that we are founded upon. The love is the proper response and relationship to Him by which He is found to be the rock. If we love Christ, we will find Him the rock. The Christian life cannot be built on Christ without the proper response to Him. You're not a Christian if you don't love Christ. You're not a Christian if you don't love God. And even John is so bold to say in 1 John, if you don't love Christ and, and love God, if you're not loving His people, well, those things are all tied together. So the response of the Christian to God and His people should be love. And so stability is the idea. Firmness. That love is good ground. Love for God. Love for Christ is good ground for us to be founded upon. It's the greatest and most powerful anchoring force in the Christian life out of which we can then grow into the rest of the power that Paul lists in his prayer. He gets to knowledge. He gets to knowledge of something. So, so following strength for the inner man through the Spirit, so strength to be dwelt in by Christ, rooted and grounded in love for Him, and I should say for people, so that we may be able to comprehend something. Verse 18 and the end of chapter 3 says, may be able to comprehend with all the saints. What is, what are, what is that something? What are we comprehending? What is the length and width, height and depth of God's love, and to know the Messiah's love that surpasses knowledge? <laughs> I love C.S. Lewis, and I love my favorite, favorite book in the Narnia trilogy by him is Voyage of the Dawn Treader. I feel like eventually, if, if you've read the book, that eventually people on the ship, the Dawn Treader, Prince Caspian and his friends, are trying to sail to Aslan's country. They feel as they get closer to it, all of a sudden the water changes. It becomes sweet to taste. The sun gets bigger, but their eyes are able to handle it. Everything is bright. Everything is beautiful. I feel like this is the part of the prayer where we start to enter into the waters close to, close to Aslan's country in Narnia. The love that God has revealed for us in the Scriptures and on the cross by the Spirit is something that we can never know the full of. It says the Messiah's love surpasses knowledge, but it is something that it is our sublime privilege to be able to taste and see. We can taste and see that the Lord is good. We can see that, and it's, it's not, it's God's love too. 
the length and width, height and depth of God's love, to know the Messiah's love, the love that God has for us. God's all-encompassing love, death-killing love, life-giving, eternal, glorious, magnificent love that He makes known to us and available to us in Christ. And notice, too, that it includes all the saints. includes all the saints together. We may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the length and width. So even, even to catch a glimpse of this, a glimpse of this love, takes the whole church to do it. it. takes the whole church. So again, the Christian life is not an isolated affair. You're not going to be able to know the fullness, to even taste the, the fullness of the love of God without doing it in community. I can't stress this enough. To be part of a church that loves Christ and loves people and to love Him together so that you may be able to know just a glimpse, just the taste of God's love for us. And that that taste is more than we could ever hope to imagine as far as its goodness. But to even have, to even taste it is that that's what we are able to have through the power of Christ. Paul celebrates that through Christ powering the church, we're able to taste God's love. We're able to be made strong in our spirit. We're able to be to accomplish what He has done, to what He has to do for us here on this earth, to, to make Him known, to love Him, to be holy before Him. It is the strength that enables us to love Christ and others, but it's also the strength together that we're able to taste God's love, to see God's love for us. It's why Paul talks about the superiority and magnificence of love in 1 Corinthians 13. But he does it in the context of building up and edifying the church. Love is part of the church. It's not, it's not something that stands apart from it. So loving God and each other and looking ever deeper into the richness of God's love is a relentlessly community affair. And so finally we get to the pinnacle of Paul's prayer. End of verse 19. So you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, in his book, The Unsearchable Riches of Christ, writes, there is no more staggering statement in all of Scripture than this. And I'm pretty inclined to agree. As we look at it, I want to clarify us that, I want to clarify what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that we have all of God dwell in us. First of all, God is omnipresent. You can't be fully concentrated into one body, into one thing, into one of us, or even the church. For then, we would actually be, instead of Christians, little Christs, that's what that term means, we would instead be actual Christs walking around. Because that's what Colossians 1.19 says, For God was pleased to have all His fullness dwell in Him. So Christ is the one who all the fullness of God dwells in Him, not us. So I just want to set that, set that up for us real quick. So I think a better way to understand this verse, instead of being literally filled with all of God, is that we are instead filled to the brim with who Christ is in us. We are filled up with Christ. Now we can contain all of Him. We are filled up completely with Him. And the man in, who has that kind of relationship with Christ in whom Christ dwells with power, in whom they have begun, to understand, have begun to understand Christ's love which surpasses knowledge, can begin not just to have 
We have, we have God's love. God has set His love upon us. We have that already, but instead we are now get to be filled up with the fullness of God. And so following Dr. Lloyd-Jones again, he's, he outlines what this looks like in a person. And also as well in a church, again, community. They are controlled and dominated by Christ in thinking and feeling and in will. Completely dominated, controlled by Christ. And that a person and a church would have the desire to be completely satisfied by God, to long for a deeper love for Him, to long for any sinful impediment to be removed from between you and Him, to long for the power to serve and glorify Him, and have every sense of dissatisfaction and emptiness and insufficiently removed by the filling up of oneself in Christ. That's what Paul means when he says says that he wishes for the Ephesians to be filled up with the fullness of God. That's what he wants for us. That's what it looks like to be empowered by Christ. That is the life given completely to celebrating Christ. That's what we're doing here. We're celebrating what Christ has done, what Christ is doing in the church it's a life completely surrendered to Christ as their power, as their power to live. So we've celebrated Christ the foundation. We've celebrated Christ the good news, Christ the proclamation. Now we've celebrated Christ the power. And Paul ends for us here with the response that the church should have. And it's one of celebration, isn't it? It is a doxology. It is praise. So celebration. Celebrating Christ should instill and should give rise to praise within us for Christ. And so it's got one thing. It's content. First let me read. Let me read it. Oh, it's so good. Now to Him who is able to do above and beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. To Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. So its content is God. To Him, who is able to do above and beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us, to Him be glory in the church. So it's our praises relentlessly God-centered. It's never anything else. When we're worshiping in the church, we'll be sure worshiping to God. In front of God, Paul Paul says he doesn't talk about necessarily the praise, but he says, I kneel before the Father. When he kneels in prayer, he doesn't kneel in in a chair. He's not thinking about where he is. He's thinking that he's in front of the throne of God himself. So his praise is therefore to God. And it's not to anyone else. It's not for anyone else. It's for God alone. Not praising God to be seen in the sight of man as of anything who can be praised or worshipped. Instead, he says, to God alone be glory. To God alone. For his incomprehensible power to work through the church in more ways than we could ever think or ask. That's something. It gets to the stance of Paul in this praise. Humility and submission. to do above and beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. Paul understands that we stand small before a great God. But we submit to Him to do things as great as He is through us. 
We cannot ask any more of Him than this, and we should never ask any less. Instead, we should submit to the great power of God at work within us to accomplish all that He wants to do. That means not limiting God in our incredibly finite minds. Paul says, I can't think. I can't think of anything else. I can't think of anything else to ask or think about to praise Him, to ask of Him. Instead, I'm just going to submit to the fact that He can. He can do more than I can ever think, more than I could ever ask. So we praise Him for the fact that He can, and we pray to Him to do this, to do all that He is able to do through us. And we know that God can do mighty things, that He is able. So finally in this doxology, the duration of it. To Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. So we're going to echo this praise for all eternity as Christians. We get to do this. We should want to. Like We strive for the day where we're able to do this without any impediment within us that prevents us from doing it. We want to see this praise not, not just given by our own lips, but we want to see His glory and power proclaimed by all generations forever and ever. All generations. So we want the gospel to go to all generations. Not just this, but let's preach the gospel today. Let's proclaim the message of Christ. Let's celebrate Christ today so that people 500 years from now, if we're still here, because of what, because of the praise we've given to God, because of the, because of the celebration of God in our, in our proclamation of Him, so that people 500 years from now are still praising Him. He's done it for, he's done it for thousands of years. He's done it for 2,000 already in Christ. Not counting what happened in the Old Testament. Not counting the writers of Psalms. But that people for time immemorial... Time uncountable can praise Him because of the work that we do. Because of the celebration that we do. Only God is worth this kind of praise. And God working through us to spread the glory of Christ will see to it. That's the cool thing. Again, it's not reliant upon our efforts. This is God working in us. According to the power that works in us, this happens. And so that God will bring this about. He will see to it that all generations forever and ever praise Him. He will see to that. And He's inviting you to join in with Him in that pursuit. So to close, let's... Just three quick things. Let's celebrate Christ. Let's praise Him gloriously. And let's get to work. Let's pray. Dear Lord... Thank you for your word. Thank you that you have revealed yourself to us by it. Thank you that by it you work in us. And thank you that you give us a sure foundation. Thank you that you build us into a family, into a kingdom, into a sanctuary for you.
thank you that you've given us a message to proclaim, a message about one who came and died and rose again to save sinners, to give them life, to be with him forever. Thank you that you made us the messengers. I pray that we are proclaimed faithfully. Thank you that you gave us recipients. Thank you that our word does not go without hearing. Thank you that your word does not go without hearing. And thank you that we get to proclaim this to those who would stand against it and say your time is short. Your time is nearing an end. You will not win. Thank you that you empower us to be the church, to be the people of God, to love you, to love others, to taste your love and to be filled with your fullness. And thank you that we get in Christ to proclaim forever and ever your great praise. So Father, I come before you to do above and beyond all that we can ask or think according to the power that works in us. To you be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. In Jesus' name, amen.